family in Bristol. For the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project from BCFM, Bristol Community Radio, in partnership with the British Library, Bristol Archives and Bristol Culture Team. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Hello, my name's Pat Hart, and in late 2021, I worked with a group of local people exploring Bristol's sound archives with the aim of producing a series of short podcasts reflecting an aspect of Bristol life. We ended up choosing the broad theme of family to explore, and our group came up with the following interpretations. Before we listen, I'd like to say many thanks to all the contributors to this course including broadcasters Paris Troy, Harriet Robinson and Marcus Smith, who also devised this course. Oh, and our amazing course participants, Katie, Jenny, Nirvana, Vicky, Mahi, Mary, Ian, Rona, Aaron, Helen, Hannah, Jalak, Tiffany and Penny. Let's begin. My name is Vicky Rancy, and I am one of the Bristol volunteers for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project. When listening to the recordings from the Bristol Archives, I was really drawn to one interview in particular. It was with a Mr Matthews and his stories about family life, growing up with his mum, his dad and his siblings. He was born in the early 1900s, and this interview took place in 1979. He tells us about his early life growing up in central Bristol. Father had a... he worked on the railway. Well, we had ten in our family. And I was the only one to help father in the garden. I used to go to the garden when I was about a ten. Mother used to make our own clothes. She used to go up to all market and buy the material, cut out the patterns, make our shirts and everything. Yeah, and uh, we had a big earthenware pan. Mother used to get the flour, make up the dough, and take up to the bakehouse, have it baked ten loads at a time, bring them back and put them in this big earthenware pan. Yeah. With ten children to bring up, that's a lot of clothes to make and mouths to feed. Here's another clip from Mr Matthews, where he remembers a royal visit to Bristol when he was a child. Yes, I can remember when um, King Edward Stamp came to Bristol to open the Royal Edward Dock. And I was at school then, and uh, they put up stands in front of zoological gardens for the school children sing under George Risley, which was Sir George Risley now. And um, we was in the stands waiting for the king to come from Mavenmouth. And uh, there was a great cheer shouting going up. We thought that was the king coming round uh, the downs, you see, round to Upper Belgrave Road. Well, who should turn up? With the 25th Boys Brigade. That's who they was cheering. 
because Joe's right, he got his baton ready for us to start singing. And who should come inside was the 25th Boys Brigade. And uh, I had a brother in the Boys Brigade, Brother Wally. He was two years older than me. And uh, I shouted out, Wally! Oh no, they marched up there like the up in the guards. <laughs> I love imagining Wally's embarrassment as his younger brother shouts out his name at this very formal event. Next up, Mr Matthews recalls the names of all of his siblings. Listen out for Sam in this next clip. Oh, Wally. Wally was all of me. I was like, Wally. Wally, then... And Abe, then Bill, then Jim, and uh, Alice. Oh, no, there's another one, Ike. Ike, Isaac. Isaac, he was below me, Isaac. Then Joe. No, no, Flory, Isaac, Joe, and Sam. Sam would die at ten months. God, I nursed him. He died in pneumonia. I can't imagine how hard that was for him to care for a sick baby brother whilst only a child himself. Around one in five children born at that time did not make it to their fifth birthday. But the 1900s was the beginning of a big improvement to child mortality rates, and now it is just one in every 250. Here's another story from his early childhood, this time involving his big brother Jim. When I was two, I went up to the... We lived at Short Street, and then uh, on top of the street was the river feeder. Well, I get down on the towpath on my stomach uh, to fish because in them days there was no pollution in the water then. The river was full of fish. Along come a, a little barge, long barge, bringing sand from Gloucester. And the people lived on the barge, but the barge was being uh, towed along the uh, river feeder by a horse. And uh, it was getting near me, and when the horse would pull it, the rope, the sag, they'd tighten up again. Well, I stood up, and the money tightened up the rope again, and she caught me in the back of the neck. Well, it's in the river, I had to go. And my brother Jim, good swimmer, I got the medal for swimming at school at a quarter of a mile, he jumps in and sees me. And uh, I could see myself going down short yard like a drowned rat. Mum put me up on the chair, stripped me and cleaned me up. Then, two years old, Mr Matthew's life was saved by his older brother. It's good to have siblings looking out for you. I like to think that the ten Matthews children got to cheat that one in five mortality figure with Jim's quick thinking and strong swimming skills. One thing that is missing from Mr Matthews' interview was his first name. He gave us the names of all of his siblings, including his younger brother Sam, and I would love to know Mr Matthews' first name too, so that he can be remembered alongside them.
My name is Hannah Bestwick, and I've been working with BCFM on the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project. While I've been listening to the audio archives from the Bristol People's Oral Project, I felt very aware of the impersonal way we sometimes look into the past, focusing more on the experience of a population as a whole, rather than the individual. And that's what I love about oral history. It's hearing the stories and memories about the day-to-day, how people pass time, what they thought about the world, and what they would do to entertain each other and themselves. There are so many anecdotes and stories in the archives which talk about this, but I've pulled out some of my favourites to show you, from Bertha Onions and Ernest Croom reminiscing about the times they spent with their siblings, colluding, playing, generally getting up to no good. So, first, here's Bertha talking about how she would break mother's rules to help her brother read the Bristol Observer on a Sunday in exchange for a little kickback. Did your parents, uh, did your mum uh, keep any books in the house? Oh yes, we had yeah, the bullet boys, you see. Uh-huh. Yeah. And were you actually encouraged to read these Oh books? yes, and I love reading, I still do. Yeah. Can you remember sort of titles of... There was a girl's friendly, you know, a bit of a magazine of some sort. Mother never allowed us that. The only paper we ever had in the house was the Bristol Observer that came out on a Saturday morning. And every one of us was allowed to read it, if we wanted to. But not on a Sunday. It was hid on a Sunday. But I found out where it was. You found where it was hidden? And I found out where she hid it, and it was in under her, her armchair, under a cushion, because she had chintz cushions sewn, you know, all pretty. And I found it, and I used to let my brother William, which was the eldest, William Milton, he used to slide me a penny, hide a penny for me and tell me where it was, if I'd let find it, find it for him, perhaps on a Sunday afternoon or... Not morning, because they went to the adult school, Barton Hill Adult School, Sunday morning. (laughs) A little something for you, a little something for me. Nothing like a treasure hunt with a very real monetary payoff. So Bertha also talks about the chores that she had to do at home to help out her mum, who was single and working to support the family. This wasn't unusual. Most girls were expected to help out at home. And while girls normally helped out in the home, boys would usually land chores outside the house instead. For example, here's Ernest talking about finding some fun while searching the ash heaps for cinder to bring home for the fire. Like I said, was like another place was when I was five years old, there used to be the ICO Motor A mouth. They used to have a place it called the Nephon by uh, St Anne's Bore Mills. And that was all big furnaces for doing this acid. They used to have the acid. You could see rats running out the baskets. And I could straw all around and I used to leave them out on the pavement. And you, I bet you've been up the Nephil, have you? No. Oh, it leads on down to a little bridge into the feeder. And uh, over on the other side, where he used to dump all their cinders and all that stuff, and a tip for odds and ends of the, the rubbish of the Bristol. And I go, our brother was eight years old, of course, he was a bit older. He pushed out a box cart we make out of old soap box with two pram wheels on. He sit eye in on top of the sacks. And then we go all out there from, which was an average about four miles from. Church Road or Morville Square, and then I used to order the sack open and he'd sift through to get the cinders out what they burn in the furnace. And that sometimes, and going down the Lawrence to a coal that was our fuel. 
The joy of being pushed around in a car of your own making is unmatched. It made me think about the soapbox derby they hold in Porter's Head. So, we've just got time for one more, and this is Ernest again, telling us about his brother taking him to see something unexpected in one of the dark corners of the house. And we had one window one way looking out and a blank wall all around and one window down in the little living room. It was all over one part as the light went down. It, it was all like black kind. I was a bit frightened of going in the corners I was. He was a little kid. And at night, um, our brother got... The torches just come out then. Little ones, wool were sixpence and a shilling store was then. So there's nothing over a shilling. You go down there and he was all the covers. And he got a torch and he said... I'll tell you what, tonight, he said, we'll wake our man. He said, come on the stairway, I'll show you something. So I went on there, and there's an old place in the corner of the room. We never use it, I mean, it's cobwebs and all. It's frightening to go in there, our mother was. I go our brother, our father done it. So, and uh, he shone the light, and there's a little humming sound going. And there he was, the leader in front, going over to the ashes of the fireplace. About, must have been about 60 to 70 cockroaches. And they did. he said that was done every night. And they disappear by the morning. They get into the hot ashes to have a warm. Honestly, it sounds like he had good reason to be frightened of those dark corners. This has been a piece for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Today, dozens of campaigners are here in the heart of central London in Westminster joining MPs to save the NHS from what they deem as a power and money grab. It comes on the day of the second reading of the NHS Health and Social Care Bill. My mother lost her last baby, but there was no funeral then. It was on her bed. The body was just taken away. My mother died and left a baby three weeks old, and the oldest one was nine. That was six girls and one boy. They had this slum clearance because of one up and one down place. And the lavatory landlord who owned them, he said he wasn't going to have the lavatories or his place where there was no flushes and rats used to come up at night, so people didn't really, really have the pot in the house. And uh, the health inspector for that area said give him automatum. If he didn't do them, he'd pull them down and uh, rehouse all the lot of the people. There was seven families out there, and we used to use a one tap. I'm proud about the National Health Service. It's a piece of real socialism. It's a piece of real Christianity too. We had to wait a long time for it. Ivy Petty was born in 1904 and spent most of her life in Barton Hill. She was born to a backdrop of a country trying to keep up with the pace of its own industrialisation. During her lifetime, family health provision would change beyond recognition. The public health crises of the 19th century saw infectious diseases such as cholera rip through the population, leading to the first Public Health Act in 1848. But better sanitation and slum clearances were introduced, but death rates remained high. For Ivy and her family, poverty bred ill health through a lack of adequate clothing, nutrition and housing, poor work conditions and without the funds to access healthcare. Two years before she was born, the First Midwives Act helps the infant mortality rates almost half between 1900 and 1930, from 1 in 7 babies to 1 in 25. Mothers dying during childbirth would go from being just part of life to virtually non-existent. 
Waves of welfare reforms that would begin to gather momentum after World War II saw the National Insurance Act in 1911, which created a system of health insurance for working men, but not their families. For that, Ivy would have to wait until 1948 and the introduction of the NHS. Well, we just couldn't afford to be bad. I mean, if we were ill, we were ill and that was it. I mean, say we did have clinics, uh, we did go to, but you don't, everything seems so different today. Um, they may give you a little bottle of medicine, but um, if you didn't have the money to pay for the doctor, you couldn't, you just couldn't uh, have the doctor. And they, we were in a very poor neighbourhood. Sometimes I've gone to school with no songs on and without breakfast very often because my father was out of work, mother had a struggle, we couldn't get the help those days is what they get today. Attend school because they did not have the clothes or the shoes to wear. Sometimes they become barefooted and of course when the snow was on the ground you could just tell how our feet were. I suffered with chill pains for seven years through not having proper shoes on my feet. And of, and of course, you couldn't get doctor's certificates or any help from the doctors then. And of course, we, we used to have to suffer the chill pains because we couldn't get anything to put on them. There was national health wasn't about then. Mother started for a combination down Trees Lane. And uh, it was then, uh, during the First World War, that my mother's sight started going. Of course, there was no help then, not towards her sight, is what there is now. Probably, if, if it had been now, she could have had operations that would have proved a success, that she would not have went totally blind. Even when I was getting married, I was innocent. I didn't really know what was wrong. I, uh, I was frightened to death, I'm going to tell you, but still, never mind. I was married three years and two months when I had my first son, and my son was nearly ten when I had my daughter. And they two good children, and I'm not to be thankful for. They just cut you open, and, and, and that was that. That's when I found out that I was pregnant, I went to my daughter, and uh, of course, I was still working then, and uh, it was a sat sitting down job that really I was all right. There was no contraceptive then, that we just had to be as careful as we could, as we couldn't afford to have too many children because there was no family allowance then, not when I had my first child. But um, when I had my second one, I had it for, for Sandra for a little while. My husband was lucky enough to start at the smelting works at Aiden Mouth about a week before Christmas. He worked at the smelting works for 34 years until he had a double coronary which, and they are on about the scare of the cadmium at Shippen. But my husband worked in the cadmium plant for years. He used to have that pint of milk every day and pass the doctor every week. It was a terrible job, but I never heard him grumble once because he couldn't afford to grumble and he could not afford to stay home because you couldn't get 
help. If you gave if you gave your job up then, you would not get any labour money. Well, my my husband had a double coronary, and then they found out that he was a diabetic, which caused gangrene in his foot. And I think partly it was due to the hard work and the fact that the money was not enough not to give him what he should have considering the hard job that he had. We don't realise uh, how lucky we are with the, our health service and our doctor scheme. I mean to say, uh, look at the immunisation that the babies can get. But we didn't have any of those in those days. We, I mean say, you can get inoculated against whooping cough, bronchitis, everything today. The babies, if the mothers could take their babies to the clinic, today they can get every help, which we couldn't get those days. Bartonia was a poor neighbourhood, but the children were looked after by the mothers and fathers. I feel sorry for what we had to go through, but it was an experience of a lifetime. Family, school, community. The development of our emotional abilities and social interactions begin with our family and continue at school, the place we frequently call our second home. Meaningful learning is built at this stage and would constitute our perception of the world here and after. During our early years, schooling period is very important in our education, but mainly in our training as human and social beings. The audios in this piece were recorded in 1979, so we will travel through time and dive in the memories of Mr. Church, John Marcunas, Ivy Petty, Archie Harvey, and Mabel Barton, who share with us a wonderful picture of their past. Oh, what did you think of school at the time? Did you find the work interesting? Me, I loved, I loved school. I mean, everything in the, I suppose it was an escape really from home to me because home was something you just went into and came out out so there's there's no attractions in the home really in those days and I think school gave you an outlet for all sorts of energies and I enjoyed it very much. At school we gain the knowledge that allow us to build a conscious from and for the daily life. This conscious not only comes from various topics such as arts, math, science or sports, but all together with their own essence give us a better understanding of life. We will now listen to the favorite activities of Mr. Church and John Marcunas. They shared with us some anecdotes from their elementary school, Oldham Moorfields. I love sport, games, playing, anything that took up energy and effort had to be made, that's all a sort of thing, anything like that. And uh, had no other, I, I, lo I love writing, sort of, sort of composition work, imagination work, and any sort of thing. Subjects was woodwork, 
but not having the facilities. We used to, once a week or once a fortnight, something like that, we used to go to a, another school where they had the you know, carpentry facilities, you know, the tools and so forth. And I remember that the first uh, job they give you was to plane a piece of wood straight. Well, at the end of the term, you know, the boys were making pipe racks and all that sort of thing, you know, to take home, and I was still trying to plane my piece of wood straight. The school subjects are not the only things that Liva bring in our minds. Teachers, whose aim is to help every student and teach with their heart, leave huge traces in our lives, as you can listen to Mabel's experience. I remember we used to like our singing lessons, but then we liked the teacher too. I can remember the teachers quite well. What's so special about the teacher? This one was young and she was enthusiastic. She was interested in all we did. And, and we also liked the things she taught us to sing, you know. She was quite modern in her outlook for singing. She was nice, Miss Kinghorn, I can remember her now. The one thing I can remember is that I was very slow learning to tell the tongue, and she gave me special attention. Well, she'd sit by me. After class, we sit down together for But I was a bit ashamed of that, really. <laughs> Still, yes, after class it was. Yes, not very long. Oh, I dare say it wouldn't be more than 10 minutes. The human values that the world shared with us during our infant years are part of the confirmation of our story and life experience. The relationship that is built between two or more who take care of each other without any interest is called friendship. Sometimes relations are determined by the family links involved. However, in other situations, only our will and desire is what establish a connection with the other. This is what we call love. I had to get a small smell of backside, and so did my brother. I mean, say he was only a year and nine months older than what I was, and I could play with him more than what I did with the girls. We could play uh, with a whipping top, we played uh, with a hook, a knocking up ginger, played knocking up ginger, and I've had more than one good idea for playing knocking up ginger. But we could always bring friends home. Did you have a special group of friends? I had one girl that I was friendly with most of my school days, and uh, she used to come to our house, I used to go to her. In the area where we lived, there was um, a family next door, they had a girl and boy, the same age as two of my brothers, and the other side, there was quite a big family, and uh, they, we all played in the gardens, we had a long garden. The group of human beings that share a determined time and space is denominated community. The community represents the place where we develop our thoughts, our minds and our body. The people who is around us is an extension of the family. Together, we establish our social and cultural constructs. Sometimes, the support of the community is also part of our memories and experiences, providing us a sense of belonging. I can remember mother was able to buy a, a grave yeah, and uh, asked for having gravestones. Well, you just couldn't afford it those days. But uh, I think mother paid five shillings and had some tiles put round just to keep the grave up together. 
but the neighbours collected and bought him a rose bowl that we have got on the grave now. And uh, of course, we used to have to go every week to the cemetery because uh, if we missed, Mother thought it was terrible. But today, they don't seem to realise just what it is. The common human values let us function as a society. This is what gives us our sense of belonging as a human race. The family is the universal and natural element of every human society. The values that permeate the Bristol community make it lush, lovable, and in this sense, as a comprehensive family. The family of Bristol community. But I was grateful and thankful to come back to Barton Hill. I was married in St. Luke's Church, just across the road, and I feel that Barton Hill was my home from the beginning, and I'm thankful that I am back on Barton Hill. Family in Bristol for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project from BCFM, Bristol Community Radio, in partnership with the British Library, Bristol Archives and Bristol Culture Team, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. And death shall have no dominion. No more may gulls cry at their ears or waves break loud on the seashores. Where blue a flower may a flower no more lift its head to the blows of the rain. Though they be mad and dead as nails, heads of the characters hammer through daisies, break in the sun till the sun breaks down. And death shall have no dominion. Richard Burton, reading And Death Shall Have No Dominion, written by Dylan Thomas in 1933. My name is Ian Frampton. In this podcast, I'll be exploring how people interviewed for the Bristol People's Oral Project in 1979 record their experiences of death in the family during their childhood in the early 20th century. I really remember my father's death, him being buried, and the earth and all that that went on in the street. I remember looking out of the window. I was about six then. My mother and her brother died the same day, and seven years after, my mother's sister and her father died the same day. Well, my mother's was um, childbirth. And my uncle was during the war. And then when my auntie died, the one I was named after, um, she was at Wellington and my grandma was sent for down there. And when she came back, we just sent to say her, her husband was ill, like my granddad was ill. and. Um, when she got back from Wellington in the evening, my granddad told us my auntie was gone. He said, she's calling me and I'm going with her. My grandma was only on about 10 minutes and the doctor came in and he said, isn't it strange, your death's coming doubles. 
And she said, you're not telling me my husband's going. And my auntie died six in the morning, he died six at night. I remember that very well, because we had the two, no, we had the two coffins, the coffins on top of one another in the one hearse, jet black then for funerals. Uh, my grandma, mother's mother, died when I was three, and her father died when I was six. I don't think I, I only just thought I shan't see them anymore. I don't think I, I thought any more about it uh, then. I believe when father's father died, um, I was rigged out with um, a, I, well, I won't know, I might have been 11 by then, with a black dress and a white sash. We didn't have black before that. And I said, well, I can't remember children going into mourning, but um, I, I haven't really any conscious recollections of um, when my relatives died. Perhaps mother and father didn't talk about it all that much in front of us. I know we had one little boy. He was in our street. He was very loved by everyone. And uh, he made a little trolley for Will. And going down over Marsh Lane, he met with an accident and he died. And we were all heartbroken to think that he had died. He wasn't very old. I wasn't very old at the time. But still, that didn't let us leave, lose our faith. I mean, say there was some reason behind it all that God should have took her and him with him. My dad died in 1928, and I was very sad because he'd been so ill with sleeping sickness. He'd picked a, a virus up when he was in the First World War. Yeah, they said he'd been bitten by a taxi fly, and I can remember his funeral cost £15. But of course, that was a lot of money those days. But anyway, I was awfully sad when he went. Of course, those days there wasn't motor funerals. It was horse and cart. I, th I remember just having the hearse and the two horses in front. Just a few of us went to the funeral, all in deep mourning, which we had to wear for 12 months after, because to go out in mourning within the 12 months, they thought it was terrible. In those days, of course, the infant mortality was higher, and we used to hear of a woman losing a baby or a child, and uh, that sort of brought it home to us. But, uh, I don't think it worried us much. As a trustee of the children's bereavement charity, Panhaligan's Friends, I've met a lot of grieving families. What's striking about these recordings is how present death was in the lives of children in the early 20th century. Arguably, being closer to the experience of a death in the family will have helped these children to integrate their loss into a broader understanding of the inevitability of the end of life. That death truly shall have no dominion.
In the early 1900s, childhood and family life in general would have looked very different in comparison to life today. Quality of housing and living conditions were considerably worse. Family sizes were far larger in number than today's, and at the age of 14, it was common for children to leave school and start work in order to support their parents financially. I was interested in exploring the relationship between children and parents, and what parts of our parents' identities get passed down to us, and what parts do we reject. It struck me that the old adage of you can't choose your family rings true throughout the generations. In this first clip, recorded in 1979, Dorothy C. Young talks about the bond with her father and their shared interests. Well, apart from the the PT, maths was my favourite subject to begin with, and much to father's sorrow, history I did not enjoy. Well, when I went to college, somehow or another, I don't know why, we had um, a lecturer, we called them, um, Professor Leonard, and... um, when I did my final exams, he um, asked uh, to speak to me and said he congratulated me on my paper. It was excellently done, uh, but he would just uh, suggest that another time I use a few more dates. But at any rate, through, through that period, uh, evidently I liked the way it was uh, put toward me. Also, I liked the subject. My father was a socialist, and so I was a socialist. What father was, I was in those days. Uh, Mind, father taught us to think for ourselves. But we had um, four uh, questions um, in our paper to do in two hours. I took an hour and a half to write the answer to... By the end of the 18th, by the end of the 19th century, the aims and objects of socialism had been reached. Discuss this statement. And when uh, Professor Leonard congratulated me on the paper, I wished Father was alive to hear, because I felt I'd been a disappointment before. He was very great on history, you see, and uh, uh, he never um, blew me up or anything like that, you know, for not doing too well in history. I don't say I came right down at the bottom, but I never excelled in history. But it was Father who gave us, most of us, our love of reading. What sorts of books can you remember reading? Uh, He was um, most interested in historical books, books on um, Egyptian history, but history general um, interested him. That's why I say I was a bit disappointed that I hadn't taken more to history than I did. But... um, there, it, it paid off in the end. I'm... What sorts of books did you read when you were young? Well, things like Black Beauty and uh, Little Women and uh, so on. When I was, I can show you my um, my first book. I think. Come on, here. In the next clip, also recorded in 1979. A Mr Harding outlines a similar political identity, but describes a very different relationship with his father. I'm a socialist, a strong believer in the rights of the working class people. I always have been. Some people would term me as a rebel, I suppose, really. We talk about politics then, Um, you say you're a socialist. Yes. 
Um, what class or group would you say your, you and your family belong to? Well, I should say we was all the same. We were socialists, except my father. And he was a yes sir, no sir, free barracks, forcer, my father was. <laughs> He, as long as he was getting uh, getting enough money to go in the boozer, that's all he that's all he worried about. But his um, his uh, his allegiance was to the Taurus. He was a, he was a trade. He was a proper Tory. My father was. He was a blue. But I wouldn't. I was against him. And my brothers as well. All three of us. We was always against him. Against the father. We didn't approve of what what he stood for. In a follow-up interview, he goes on to explain how the differences with his father affected his upbringing and how his father failed to support his passions and interests. If your parents could have afforded it, would you have liked to have continued your education? Yeah, I would have liked to have been an artist. I was a fairly good hand at that, black and white. Was that something that you I used decided to... later in life? Or was well, that what you I could have had a good job where I went to work had I, had I been an artist. I used to catch all, take all the girls, all the girls in, in the factory, and there was a hundred of us on our floor. Or, or they used to call them albums at the time. I used to take them home and, and draw something in there. Every, if, if it was possible, you could see some of it now, I suppose, to this day, if, uh, they, if I knew where they all went. I used to do a lot of that, didn't I? I used mm. to tell you. Yeah. My father was asked to, to apprentice me, but he, he, he wouldn't had no money for apprentice. He only had money for beer. That was all. But I, I always think I, I had wonderful talent for that. And it was a no good at all. I could have earned good money when I left school. If I, they, they offered to apprentice me in the, in the factory. But so, he, he wouldn't pay the apprenticeship, the premium. Um, were there any night classes available? Oh, yes. There was night classes available in them days, yes. Oh, yes. Could you have gone to those? Well, well yeah, I could have, but I didn't. I didn't because um, it meant some finance or some description from somewhere. Oh, my parents was hopeless. So that would that rule that out. Anything where the finance was concerned. I think there must have been thousands of people like me in our day that had wonderful talent and it couldn't be fulfilled because they never had the wherewithal, you know, money to see them through. Do you think if um, you had had the money or, or if you'd managed to go to the college that you would have, uh, I don't know, made more of your life? Oh, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure of that. I shouldn't have met her at the show here for a start. Oh, <laughs> <a bad day. laughs> oh, that's... I vote. Memories of our school days live long into our lives and they remain there when other recollections have been mislaid. My 91-year-old dad, who has dementia and can't remember this morning, can recite a poem in full that he won a prize for at school in Bath during the war when he was 11. Top of these memories are those of our teachers, good and bad, who shaped our early years and are still with us in technicolour clarity when we're old and all around us is slightly grey. We remember our teachers for what they were to us, but also for what happened to them. In 1979, Bertha Emma Onion tells us about Miss Matthews, her teacher at school in the 1900s. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it, but she was a teacher that was very strict. She was very smart, very dressy, and very, very up to date. 
and wherever she went you could hear her coming, because she wore a watch and a bag of little silver coins on the outside of her skirt. You could hear them jingle long before you ever saw her. And her father was a music man, and actually she lived in a music shop in our old arcade in Bristol. And they kept that shop in the arcade as long as ever I remember, until she was left there all alone, and she lived there all alone. And she finally was murdered. She was murdered in the arcade. They think, it was never proven, but they think it was the nephew. Mind we all, none of us really liked Miss Matthews, really. She was very strict, but if you got through her class, you did all right. For some people, teachers remain firmly trapped in vivid memories of school and childhood. But for others, like Dorothy Young at Barton Hill, they become part of their lives, the relationships they form, like the bond of an extended family. I had one, one teacher, a Miss Edmonds, that I doted upon and uh, kept in touch with her until she died about um, four years ago, I should think. Uh, I used to go to visit her afterwards when she lived outside of Bristol when I was growing up, you see, and after I was retired, my husband used to take me to... She lived at Thub Thubwell then. For Dorothy, another teacher, Miss George, becomes part of that extended family. I was very happy with that teacher there, and I didn't want to leave her. So there I stayed till standard seven and what they called X7, because I was 12 then, and uh, she was going to be married, so I don't mind leaving then. <laughs> and with the benefit of years, Leonard not is cleanly aware of a teacher's place in his sense of family. He or she was a far more dominant figure in my life than my own family. But a teacher can change the course of your life, and Leonard Knott, who started school in 1904, has led a life shaped by such a man. One in particular, Walter, shaped my life for the next 60 years. And he was, a, he was um, a man named Edwin Cook. But he took me, um, or arranged for me, to go to All Hallows Church. And um, he took me there, or sent me there, to me to have an audition for the choir. Now that started me off and gave me um, a, a connection, uh, an association with singing and music and the musical life of this city in broadcasting and uh, singing as an artist um, uh, in churches, chapels and harvest festivals, women's bright hours, church anniversaries, you name it, for, for the past 60 years. It started me off. I think this is a point one has to make. As one looks back over one's life, one sees a, a, a person who influenced and started you up. Memory is an amazing thing. And Leonard, who gives us a perfect rendition of a scale learnt as a small child, reminds us just how amazing it is. Uh, one of the one of the exercises, uh, even today, and it was do re mi so fa re do ti do so fa mi mi re do do re do. Now that's been indelible in my mind.
Hi, I'm Kate. While listening to the recordings I was sent, one of the things that really struck me was how interlinked experiences of family and food were for many of the speakers at different times. Memories of World War II depict a time when opportunities to break bread with loved ones were as scarce as the food itself, so moments where they converged took on an immense significance. Speaking in 1988, Louise Lillicrap remembers a special tin of tongue that her mother had. She'd had this tin of tongue. It was a six-pound tin. You can still see them in the butchers now. But um, um, I never see one without thinking of her. And uh, uh, it was the usual thing. Every now and we'd go down, if we, yeah, and, and she'd look around and uh, she'd say, um, did you put the flask in? Um, did you put the biscuits in for the baby? Uh, and, and her milk, yes, yes, I did all that. You better put this little shawl in, in case she gets cold, yes. Uh, yeah, I said, and mother, your tin of tongue is there. And it, you, you try and separate her from, and I said to her, mother, you don't really need to take that down, do you? She said, yes, I do. My mother said, yes, I do. She meant, yes, I do. And not one of us dared say to her, if he comes home, yeah, it was always when he came home. Mm. And when he did come home, we opened the tin of tongue. And surprise, surprise, it was very nice. So you had your party? Oh, yes, we did. We had our party. It was also inspiring to hear how, in the absence of biological family members, a unique climate for connection was formed among neighbours, who came together in the streets, in bomb shelters and around tables, sharing what little they had in kinship and resilience. Gwen Pierce was also interviewed in 1988 and recollects time spent in her neighbourhood while her husband was away in service. Was he actually posted in Bristol, or was he posted overseas? Oh, no. No, he didn't go overseas, but he was always a long way away. But then there were so many of us in the same boat, I mean, living in the same street, that we used to get together, you know, and couldn't do much else, could it? We used to get little outings up for the kiddies, you know, little tea parties in the street. We did cakes and things like that, mostly mostly a tea party it was, you know. And was it Marge or Bussy you had at the time? We used to put it together and make half butter and half Marge. And so there, there was some butter that. available then? Oh yeah, yes, yes there was. It, it wasn't First, too difficult to get on the rations? No, not on the rations, but you tried to get it on the black market and you couldn't <laughs> get it. <laughs> so that's the way you worked, was it, Gwen? <laughs> That sounds actually quite quite a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we did. We had fun. We used to go work and then keep the kiddies employed, and it was. Mm. We had fun out of it, you know, in a way. Did it sort of keep the tension down in that yeah. way? Yeah. Yes. Of course, we were all in the same boat, weren't we? All the women, mostly. There weren't many men in the street then. Heaven slept a wink at night, worrying. Of course, sharing food and living closely with neighbours wasn't exclusive to wartime Britain. 
these conditions only enhanced relationships that were already present in the community. Interviewed in 1979 about her school life, Ivy Petty recalls being given toast by an elderly neighbour who she used to call Gran. We had one dear old soul in our street and um, if mother didn't have any breakfast for us, I could say to my brother, let us go over and ask Gran what time it is. And uh, she had a parrot and we'd call out Gran and she'd say, who's that out there then? And we'd say, who oh, we were? And she'd say, come on in then. Sit on that there settle. She sat on the settle. It's like a wooden bat, man. Not modern like today. Have you two had any breakfast? We say no, Gran. She say, well, sit thee there then, and I'll make thee a bit of toast. And we were always grateful for that piece of toast, but of course we couldn't go too many times because we knew what we were after. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Perhaps these recordings seem all the more poignant in light of COVID-19, with so many of us having had to keep a distance from family, friends and neighbours in the last few years. But going forwards, I think they serve as a nice reminder to reach out, connect and share with the people around us. I'll leave you with Bertha Emma Onion, who was also interviewed in 1979 and who remembers her childhood growing up on Hayward Road. Our house was always open house for anybody that had any company in Hayward Road. Could we, could Mrs Milton borrow, could she, could she lend them a, a white tablecloth she had to put on because aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so was coming or somebody was coming to tea or could they, could she borrow a, you know, a bit of sugar or a drop of vinegar because they had a bit of fish and all things like that. All that went on, every day. I'd like to explore the concept of family. Family life, what it is, what it was, and how it's changed. What do you think of when I say family? Who do you think of when I say family? As we get transported to pre-1940, I want you to immerse yourself in the sound of the stories being told. Have a think about how different our family lives are today compared to those in the audio clips. I'd like to introduce Mr. Ernest Kerm, who I'm sure will be pleased to know he's now on a podcast too. Testified yourself on the tape recorder before? I've been on television. Have you? Yeah. Climbing. Points worse, that was. When I come out, he, he saw that and took that. All right, then. You said that you went to Moorfield Primary School when you were a kid. Yeah. How old were you when you first went to school? That was about five years old. Well, then uh, up, to, up to seven, I continued there. And then uh, they had a, this slum clearance because of one up and one down place. And the lavatories was about six foot from the front door. It was like a little lane, Moorfield Square. And... Uh, this landlord who owned them, he said he wasn't gonna have the lavatories or his place where there's no flushes and rats used to come up at night, so people didn't re really have the pot in the house. Over on the other side, we used to dump all their cinders and all that stuff, and a tip for odds and ends of the the rubbish of the Bristol. 
And I goes, our brother was eight years old, of course, he was a bit older. He pushed a, a box cart we make out of old soap box with two pram wheels on. He sit all in it on top of sacks. And then we go all out there from, which was an average about four mile from Church Road or Moorfield Square. And then I used to hold the sack open and he sit through to get the cinders out what they burned in the furnace. In. The mother used to do the cooking and all that on that fire, frying and all that. And we had one little living room and a, a, a little stairway and then the bedroom was upstairs. That was all the three of us used to sleep in that one room. And your mother? And a mother, yeah. Did you? And that, when I was a little kid, of course, our father did, see. Over one part, as the light went down, it, it was all like black kind. I was a bit frightened of going in the corners, I was, see, as a little kid. Although the essence of family remains the same today as it was 80 years ago, opinions and attitudes towards family life have changed considerably. We all associate different meanings to the word. The concept of family is forever expanding. And since the World Wars, it has undergone fundamental transformation in its structure. The Second World War had begun and family lives were about to change forever. The first bombs of the Bristol Blitz fell on the evening of Sunday the 24th of November, 1940. One of the first to be hit, and um, her, there was two sisters living together. They were both widows, and um, uh, two young girls and the boy. And it was the boy's tenth birthday, and um, the older sister and the two young girls. Well, my dad just stood there and watched the ARP men dig them out from the ruins, and they were dead, but they were terribly badly burned. And the younger sister, who was the mother of, of the girls and the boy, she um, she couldn't move because we've discovered afterwards that her back was broken. And the boy was calling her, and but he was pinned down by a beam. And she was saying to him, he was calling her mummy, and, and she said, it's all right, Graham, it's all right. Somebody will be coming soon. Where's Margaret? Of course, she realized that Margaret was gone. And um, anyway, neighbors and, um, and even a young girl, 16, helped get her out and removed this beam from across the boy's tongue. And um, they were both packed off to the general hospital, you know, which was in Guinea Street there. And uh, my brother, my dad just stood and watched the others dug out. And then uh, someone looked after my little one for me. And um, my mother and I went off to the hospital to inquire about my aunt. And, uh, oh, that casualty was absolute chaos. It's the only word I can use. The poor nurses, well, they just didn't know how to cope. I mean, it, it came in all on them. They were, they were in the big courtyard there. Um, there were ambulances arriving and people rushing out to get people out of them. And the nurses still only had one pair of hands and one pair of legs. And it was, it was chaotic. And it was a long time before we were eventually able to get a, a, someone's attention. And um, well, she sort of just waved us up into the ward, not with all the uh, formalities that one usually expects. And um, my poor aunt 
they'd, they'd only been able to, to lay her in bed with all her dirt. And I, I can always remember that white counterpane and her two arms, she was, her two arms, and all the dirt was on, on the counterpane. And as she turned her head, so the dust and all was coming out of her hair. And uh, she was quite conscious. And all she said was, do you know, do you know about Margaret and Joan? And mother said, yes, I do. She said, I, I'm so sorry, Vic, I'm so sorry. And she said, but you still got your boyd. There again, we had another raid. And, oh, no, it was, it was in the afternoon that the police came and fetched my father and said that they'd had a phone call from um, Winford Hospital and would he go as uh, she was dying. And um, he went down there and we had a repeat dose of um, the, um, another air raid and, and another bad air raid at that. The police took him down to Winford, but they were all recalled. And she died somewhere in the early hours. And he had to walk back, which was quite a way for an elderly miles, man. Yes. It? yes, and he could see all the searchlights and the flares and all that sort of thing as he was coming back from Winford. And of course, he, he didn't know what was happening to us. My mother decides that that was just the right moment to have a bronchial attack. So what with the baby crying and the bombs falling and, and mother having a bronchial attack, life was a bit hectic, I can promise you. But we survived somehow or the other, you know what I mean. Tea giving drops of brandy to mother and drops of milk to the kid. <laughs> it was uh, never a dull moment. That's an audio clip of Louise Lillycrap from 1988. She's got a very matter-of-fact attitude, hasn't she? Also a great storyteller, I felt I was able to travel back with great clarity, visualising this brutal period in Bristol's history. Uh, books, yes. Books and books and books. Books. In a world where our lives feel increasingly digital, there's something comforting in how tangible a book is. The cosy feeling of sitting down with a book and a cup of tea on a dark winter night. Today we're going to hear from Bristolians, who grew up at a time when books were becoming increasingly accessible in the early 1900s. Instead of dusty tomes found in schools and libraries, here are stories of the books that live with us in the home. Books we share with family. Books that are our constant companions. Books that we carry with us. And the books that themselves become a sort of family. We always had a lot of books in our house, you know, that uh, passed round the family, like cousins, when they finished with them, to give them to us. I like fairy stories. When I was at school, I used to read the usual type of boys' books, you know, Ryder, Haggard and Jules Verne and so forth. But when I left school, and as I say, I realised that this was the way to learn, I used to read anything. Mainly from the second-hand shop, uh, quite ancient some of them, and they're in my bookcase and there are now lots of them. Get it put in. So I read many, many books, uh, I mean each writer, Haggard, um, Mungo Park's Travels, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, um, Tolstoy's Resurrection, and the Bible, includes the Bible, of course, you see, just reading through the Bible as a book. 
I, was, I can show you my um, my first book, I think. Come on, here. Let me, let me see. That was R.G. Harvey, John Walkunas, Albert Cox, and Dorothy C. Young sharing their childhood reads with us. The process of reading itself can often be a ritual that we enjoy by ourselves or with others. Here's Bertha Emma Onion to peel back some of those layers for us. I love reading, it still do. There was a girl's friendly, you know, a bit of a magazine of some sort. Mother never allowed us that. The only paper we ever had in the house was the Bristol Observer that came out on a Saturday morning. And every one of us was allowed to read it, if we wanted to. But not on a Sunday. It was hid on a Sunday. But I found out where it was. And I found out where she hid it. And it was in under her armchair, under a cushion, because she had chintz cushions sewn, you know, all pretty. And I found it, and I used to let my brother William, which was the eldest, William Milton, he used to slide me a penny, hide a penny for me and tell me where it was, if I'd let, find it, find it for him, perhaps on a Sunday afternoon. Sometimes, a book can be a precious possession that we hold on to like family. To end, let's turn to Leonard Knott, who has some reading advice for Bertha. Now she's earned those pennies. The only books that came into my house, uh, into my home, were the books I brought myself as prizes from the Sunday school. I've got a book upstairs now. And had I taken, <coughs> had I read that book when I was a child, and which I didn't, but I kept it for sentimental reasons, had I kept that book, uh, the title will, will surprise you, uh, I would have probably... Uh, made more, I would have probably done more, uh, I had had more success in my life, financially, perhaps. It might have motivated me more. I've read it many times in later years, but the title of the book was called How Paul's Penny Became a Pound. And it was pure threat, and how this boy started with a penny and made a fortune. And that was a prize from school? That was a prize from school. How Paul's Penny Became a Pound. That prize was selected um, uh, for me uh, because I suppose they thought I, I needed it. I think prizes were given uh, and were selected and, uh, uh, and chosen uh, for the children which they thought the book might do the most good. For those of you who are interested, you may be able to pick up a copy of Leonard's prized book, or indeed its sequel. How Peter's Pound Became a Penny at Your Neighbourhood Antique Bookseller. Otherwise, settle down and find a book of your own, from your local library, bookshop, or indeed one of those well-worn books that, as Louisa May Alcott said, are so familiar that reading them is like being home again. family in Bristol for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project from BCFM, Bristol Community Radio, in partnership with the British Library, Bristol Archives and Bristol Culture Team, funded 
by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>